uh, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the Old Testament book of Nahum. Now, um, this is a very short book. It's actually, I'm going to go through it in two studies. Uh, tonight we're going to go through chapter one, and then next week we're going to be going through chapters two and three. Uh, in chapter one, we see there, there's just, it is packed full of some really glorious things about our Lord, some important truths, some aspects of his character that are very important for us to understand. And then in chapters two and three, it's primarily his wrath against Nineveh. And uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was basically the world power of the day. They were the big dogs. They were basically like the United States was 20 years ago, okay? And yes, I say United States 20 years ago because we're, we, we've been kind of decaying. We've been in a place of decay. Uh, there was a time when there would be nobody in the world who would even you know, be willing to withstand us whatsoever, but uh, that's not really the case anymore. And Assyria was like that. Now... Um, Nahum, he is a a prophet that we actually don't know very much about. Um, It says that uh, he was the uh, Elkoshite. We actually don't know where that is. Uh, If you look on your Bible maps, you know, they'll say if they do have it, most of them won't have it, but if they do have it, there'll be like a question mark and stuff like that. We don't really know where this village was. Um, So again, we don't know a whole lot about him, you know, about the prophet himself, other than you know, what we have here in the vision that the Lord gave him, we don't really know anything about the man himself, um, other than about the time uh, when he gave his prophecy, which was between about 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. Now, the reason why we know uh, those times is because um, with, in, in chapter 3 of this book, he talks about the fall of Thebes, which is the capital of Egypt. Okay. Now, so we know when that happened, and so that is in this book. That means this book had to have happened after that event. And then finally, we know that it's between that and 612 BC because uh, in the time of 612 is when Nineveh actually falls. And so the prophecy that he is declaring is about to happen does happen. So we know it's kind of in there. Now, uh, this book, though, uh, it doesn't have a lot of rhymes or anything like that in the sense that we would think of. This book is actually a poetical book. This book is literally, um, it's called a hymn of death. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting little fun fact there, but this is a hymn of death. Okay, so uh, people, those hard rockers, they, they should really love this one. But uh, the, the first, like, ten verses is literally an acrostic uh, you can't see it in, in our uh, English, but when you read the Hebrew, this is actually uh, one of those great, incredible pieces of literary work. It, it is in English as well, but in Hebrew, it's even more impressive, I am told. I've read the commentators. I don't read Hebrew myself. Um, one of these days, maybe. But, um, but th- this is an incredible work. And um, so th- this thing is... A couple of things are happening at the same time here, and I want to kind of give you a big picture of what's going on, because in this book specifically, because it is a hymn of death, and you might say this is a fire and brimstone book, the whole thing, okay, it is fire and it is brimstone the whole way through, and uh, again, it is a poetical device that the author is using, but uh, we need to know a couple of things. Number one, uh, Nahum's name, the root word of his name, it literally means comforter. Okay, so 
we're not sure because his name isn't just comforter. It's, it would be like the, just the, the NH and the M make up this word comforter, but then there's a couple of vowels in there as well. And we're not really sure exactly what his name. It could be like, you know, God is our comforter or something like that. They don't really know. I, I, I actually checked several commentators and none of them could actually give an example. They could only say that is the root of his, of his name means comforter. And I find that interesting because though he is uh, speaking this death hymn against Nineveh, uh, in the same sense, now you have uh, the nation of Israel, which uh, during the time that he was uh, writing this book, uh, Israel had been literally a vassal state of Assyria for about 100 years. That means that Assyria was uh, drawing taxes from them. They weren't their own sovereign nation. And so as uh, Nahum is speaking against Nineveh, that is actually a comfort to God's people, to the nation of Israel. And one of the really cool things about this book is that we actually see some incredible, an incredible aspect in that God is sovereign over the nations, right? And we know that, we say that, we've seen it, uh, it's written in the scriptures, but in this, when we actually look at the context of when this is happening and what's going on here, uh, we actually see it in a very profound way. And I, I just got, I got the goosebumps when I was just studying this. And one of the cool things about, uh, about what's going on here is that you have Assyria. You have this great and powerful, the superpower of the world, Assyria. And uh, they, they were these guys who literally, um, the Assyrian um, the, the Assyrian uh, army actually went down and defeated the capital of Egypt. Now, you guys know that Egypt, they're no slouches, right? They, are, they have always been a very powerful nation. And you know, these guys are so powerful that they could literally march down, cross the desert, and you know, go in there and take the, the capital of Egypt, right? These guys are very powerful guys. And, and in doing so, they also have conquered Israel. They've conquered all these different places. They're, ex, they're exacting uh, taxes and all that stuff from the Israelites. And then... This is the cool thing, though. It's like when we step back out of the timeline for a moment and we see what God is doing. Because what you guys, what I haven't mentioned yet, is that in this timeline of what um, of when uh, Nahum you know, gave this prophecy between 663 and 612, there's somebody else who's going to be coming on the scene very soon, and that's King Josiah. Okay, King Josiah, if you guys don't know, he's one of my favorite kings. He was a king who had a radical heart for the Lord. And he was one who, he literally reformed Israel. He, he like got rid of all the Baal worship, the Ashtoreth worship, which happened to be the gods of the Assyrians. And um, he, he literally went down, he got so bold later in his, um, in his rule, he literally went around and he kind of like unified Judah and Israel for the first time. They didn't completely come back together, but he actually had enough authority that he could go into Israel and break down their idols as well. So he, he actually gained quite a bit of authority uh, in his rule and reign. But here's the thing. See, God preemptively set the stage so Josiah could do that. Right? See, I want you to see this because you know, we live in a day and age when nations are rising against nations and we think, oh my goodness, the United States, we're getting weaker and weaker instead of getting stronger and stronger. And for the first time in our history, people expect that the, time, that the days of their children's lives will be worse than the times of their lives. Right? That has never been in the United States. Every generation in our past has always considered, yes, our children's generation will have it better than our generation because of what we have done. That's not so anymore. The, the general consensus is that, wow, we've really messed things up and our children are going to have a harder time than we did when we were kids. Okay? And, and so when we live in this, in this time frame and you, and you see just, like, just all the corruption, you see, you, know, all, you see like the spread of Islam, you see like all of these things that just like we, we kind of like shudder at and go, oh my goodness, what's going on, what's going on? 
Well, I, I want you to see this because this is a beautiful thing, what God did in the past. See, he knew Josiah was coming. He knew that a man after God's heart who wasn't even born at this time, right? He knew he was on his way. And so you know what God did? This great and powerful Assyria who conquered Thebes, right? He began to weaken it. He began to withhold the rain. He began to cause it to wilt and to wither. He began to rise up enemies to begin to pick away at it, to begin breaking it down. Right? He began, he actually rose up the, the Babylonians and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians to rise up. And finally in 612, they as a coalition defeated and marched on Nineveh and destroyed Nineveh itself, which will be the fulfillment of this death hymn. Okay, and all of this, now think about this. Israel has been a vassal state of Assyria, right? They've been under the rule and reign of Assyria for a hundred years, right? For a hundred years, they have been servants of Assyria. And now God begins to break down, break down. He has his eye set on King Josiah, a man who is going to be after his own heart, much like King David before him. And he sees it coming. So what does he do? He starts weakening Assyria. He starts breaking them down. He starts raising up enemies to, to begin to break Assyrian grip on Israel. And by the time that Josiah comes, about, and, and he comes in 639 BC, and about that, he was eight years old in that time, by the way. And then in about his 12th year, he began his very serious reforms. And because Assyria's grip had weakened so much on him because of all the, the conflict in their, in their realm, guess what? Josiah could, because even if he was super bold, if Assyria was this great superpower, try as he might, they would stop him. Right? They wouldn't let him destroy all of their altars and things like that. But because God had began to weaken them systematically, destroying their power, their grip was released, and Josiah was able to start breaking down and by... Uh, towards the, the, the high point of his reign, he was able to completely throw off the bonds of Assyria, right? Assyrian control uh, uh, was removed from Israel and Israel was free once more to worship the God of Israel and to throw down the gods of the Assyrians. And see, and that's what's going on. See, our God is a sovereign God and he moves nations and he sees the hearts of his people and he moves and, and he has an eye. See, like right now we could be thinking like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what's going on? But you know what? God's heart and his eyes, see, he sees it all. And he can say, you know what? Oh, no, no, just wait, just wait. I got another Josiah. He's on his way. Yo, people of God, just wait. Here he comes. Watch, or here she comes, right? There are many women who do great exploits in the name of the Lord. And God knows when the heart of a generation will stir for him. And all the days of Josiah, there was peace in Israel until his death. And then his son came up and started right back in the old ways. And guess what? This uh, death hymn over here, it also talks about judgment on Israel too. And within this one book, we're going to see how God will fulfill the promise he makes to his people to raise them up. And then he also is going to judge them as well as they fall away from him once more. So this is a very impressive little book. It's uh it's really neat. I just love it because I love seeing the sovereignty of God in action. And in this one, we can see it very clearly. And so do we need to be afraid? Do we need to fear anything? No, no. So let's go ahead and we're going to read the first chapter of Nahum and then we'll go verse by verse through it. Verse one, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. 
The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel, wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation, and who can endure the fierceness of his anger. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns, and while drunken like men, like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much for this word. Lord, we pray that you would just speak to your children now. Lord, help us to understand a little bit more of your character, who you are, your ways which are above our ways, Lord, and the assuredness that we have in you. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and ask that you would just open the eyes of our understanding, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, verse two, the verse one is basically, it's just, it's kind of the title. It's the introduction. And in two, we, we begin um, this uh, great poem uh, of Nahum. And it begins with a, a word that we we don't often understand because it says God is jealous, right? And when we think of jealousy, what do we think about when we think of somebody who's jealous, right? We, we think of some like insane boyfriend who like, you know, somebody is, is walking by and says hi to his girlfriend. He jumps on him and beats him up, right? Because he's a jealous boyfriend, right? It was actually um, from a sermon like this that caused Oprah Winfrey to reject her Christian background, because when she heard her, uh, I think he was a Southern Baptist preacher, preaching on how God was a jealous God, see, she misunderstood it. And she was like, you know, that jealousy, no, 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 that's bad. Jealousy's not good. And then she, that began the, the avalanche that uh, snowballed until she fell away from the Lord entirely. And now she's the head of one of the, great, the largest religions um, in the world. It's an online kind of spiritual thing. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But... Um, Nevertheless, she's kind of like the, the pastor of a very huge congregation of, I, I guess you'd call it New Age religion. Okay? But it, it's this misunderstanding of what it is uh, that God is jealous um, that, that kind of bothers a lot of people. I don't know if it's ever bothered you if you've ever even given much thought about it. But you know, God is a jealous God. I, I hope you understand that. But what does he mean when he says that he is a jealous God? Now, let me just kind of ask this question. Do you guys know, ladies especially, do you know that it's important for your husband to be jealous for you? 
this is an important thing. And you think, I don't want my husband to be jealous for me. I want him to be secure in, in our relationship. Oh, no, no, that he is to be also. But your husband is to be jealous for you. And this is what this means. Okay, you're walking down the street and some guy walks by your husband and says, man, you got a hot wife. And he says, yeah, would you like her? You would be very offended, wouldn't you? You would not like that at all. You would be incredibly insulted. But what he's supposed to do, he, he's supposed to, like, if somebody is coming uh, to take his wife, then he's supposed to stand up and say, you get back, right? Let's get out of here, honey, now, right? Because he is jealous for you. You are set apart for him, you know, and he is yours. And that is the same way that God is jealous for you. See, see, you are his bride if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, and he is jealous for you. And, and if you go out and you want to start like dating some other God, right? he is going to be jealous, and he would be a fool to just be like, oh yeah, go enjoy. Right? That's not really what a husband would do, or they shouldn't do. Right, the whole like wife swap thing, like that's disgusting in our generation. But nevertheless, it's it's stuff that people do. But that is not God, right? God will not share you with anyone. Why? Because He loves you, right? Because He cares about you, and so He is a jealous God. He cares about you, and not only that, but that it says that the Lord avenges, right? Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And see, and this is a great characteristic of God as well, because see, we don't have to take vengeance for ourselves, right? We don't have to have personal vendettas. We don't have to burden ourselves with bitterness and, and anger towards other people. And, and those of you who have ever had a grudge against somebody, anybody here ever had a grudge against somebody? It's a burden, isn't it? It's a heavy burden, and it weighs down on you. And in that burden, it does turn into a root of bitterness, and it poisons every aspect of your heart. And every relationship that you have is touched by that bitterness. And God says, no, 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 I will bring vengeance. He says, I am jealous for you, and the Lord avenges. And this isn't like... This isn't something where it's like, the Lord may avenge, right? The Lord, if he's in a really bad mood, will avenge you. Or if the Lord is feeling particularly chivalrous, will avenge you. No, this is a fact that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in a generation that more and more so is coming against the bride of Christ, right? We need to understand that it's not our job to take vengeance for our own personal wrongs that people have done to us. But it is ours to love, to forgive, to show mercy, to try to make sheep out of wolves, as we said on Sunday. Okay, because it is the Lord, he is the one who avenges. And, and, and then you might even say, oh, you know, I've been to all these different churches, and you know, this pastor does it this way, and this group is that way, and, and, and I don't like them. And, and whenever people come, and they start bagging on other churches, like, especially when it's like their first time in, in this church, I start going like, oh, Lord, please take them away, because how long will it be until they start bagging on me? Right? Lord, just take them away. <laughs> we don't need them. It's, we're better off without them. Right? But in the end, you know, we don't need to do that. Because, see, he's, he is the one. And he is the judge of all of his servants. And every single man, woman, and child who names the name of Jesus Christ is a servant of God. And every single man, woman, and child will stand before him and him alone. And he will give an account. He will, he will stand and say, what have you done with my name? What have you done with the word which I have um, entrusted to you? What have you done in the name of my son? Right? So, so we, as his fellow servants, we don't need to do any of that stuff, do we? We don't need to judge our brothers and sisters. Now, granted, we are called to rebuke if necessary. If we see an open sin, we witness it. We don't go and start telling the prayer chain. We don't go telling the pastor. We don't go telling all these people. We go back to them first. 
right? That's the rudimentary basic Christianity 101. When your brother sins against you, go and talk to him. It doesn't say when your brother sins against your friend that you go and talk to them. No, no, no. The friend is supposed to go talk to him. How much strife in the church would be just completely eradicated if people just listened and obeyed this one little simple thing that Jesus taught. If your brother sins against you, you go and talk to them. And don't chirp about it to everybody else. You go and you talk to them. And if you take a sinning brother and you turn them from their ways, you have saved the soul. And amen, there's a party in heaven. Okay? We are called to do that. But see, we can do that because it is the Lord who avenges. We don't need to do that. The Lord avenges and is furious. See, now that's one of those areas where you kind of like, ooh, God, does God get furious? I, I always pictured God as this calm, great king with a white flowing beard and long hair and like light shining out like sun. And he's just sitting up there like this, this you know, beautifully peaceful you know, God. But you know what? The Bible says that he gets furious. Did you know that? Right? We are made in his image. Now, granted, we are marred a bit from sin. But nevertheless, you know what? God gets furious like we do. Right? And when people mess with his kids, guess what? He gets furious. He gets angry. And that is an important thing. Um, my pastor, Pastor Joey, um, he is a guy who, who he, he will take a lot of guff against himself. But I remember there's been a couple times where people have said something against me. And you know what happens with you know, nice, loving Pastor Joey when somebody says something against somebody whom he cares about? He turns into the Incredible Hulk. A little bit shorter, mind you. But he's like the Incredible Hulk. He just like, rah! He gets upset. I remember one time uh, his son Luke got hit by a BMXer, a, a guy on a bike uh, at a skateboard park. The guy wasn't supposed to be there. There's no BMXs allowed in that particular park. And the guy hit his son. And Joey went nuts. He's like, rah! And he runs over there and he grabs the guy's bike. And he was really upset. And the guy went running and stuff like that and he like threw the bike down and he's like oh, he's yelling at the guy in the whole bit and you might think like wow pastor joey you know you need to go pray it's like no no no. you know what that's okay one of the most angry moments that i've ever had in my life was when uh we were at a um it was a church function and we had these big bounce houses blown up and there's like this obstacle course one and our little kids were running in there and I, I remember i think trinity was like three or four years old sarah was just this little baby and, and there was like emily foster emily dean valerie dean and they're all running this is that worship generation they're all running through this little obstacle course and two they, they look like seniors in high school were walking down the street and they happened to see this thing and, and they they kind of looked at each other and, and i was just walking up towards this thing and all of a sudden they charged they ran they jumped into the bounce house they knocked over all of these kids right they just bowled them over they had no regard for the, the safety of the kids and they knocked them over kids are crying they ran through that thing i got so mad i was yelling at those guys and they ran away okay that is a righteous anger and you know what guess what when, when people mess with God's people, guess what? If those people don't repent, if they stay wolves and they're a little wolfish tendencies, guess what? He will be furious at them, right? He will avenge. It's not something that's like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I might do something about it. No, no, no. Any of you mama bears who have had your children get hurt by somebody and their foolishness, guess what? You get angry. Or even, you know, you might talk about your child all the time and say, oh, my kid is this and this. You know, I, I mess around with Chloe all the time, from, even from the pulpit. When she gets older, I won't do it anymore because then she'll get, take it personally probably. But, well, maybe just a little bit. But, you know, I, I kind of talk about Chloe, you know, off and on like this. But you know what? If anybody else starts saying, like, she's a rotten little kid, you know what you're going to do? 
you're going to see a different side of Pastor Brian. Who are you to talk about my kid? Right? You know, because, I mean, that's just the way we are, aren't we? Like, that's our natural parental um, uh, heart that we have towards our kids. And the Lord, guess what? He has adopted you. Right? He has adopted you. Right? You are his own, and he cares and loves deeply for you. And so when other people harm you and hurt you, now, he is long-suffering. We're going to see that in just a second. In verse 3, he says he's slow to anger. Right? But if people harm you, and they don't repent, and they don't turn from their ways, and guess what? He's going to have words. He's going to have words. And trust me, they will, they will feel the wrath of God. But see, our desire is not that wrath um, be fulfilled, but our desire should be that God would be merciful, right? That God would be merciful. So it says, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. And see, here's an important part. This is one of those questions that comes up so often in our day and age. And it's this, it's um, why do evil people get away with so much, right? Why do evil people get away with so much? But guess what? Here's the thing. The Lord reserves wrath for his enemies, Right? You need to understand that, that every time the enemies of God, evil, wicked people doing their evil, wicked deeds, right? It's not that God, and they seem to get away with it. They're not, right? It's kind of like a savings account, right? They're just saving it up. They're storing up the wrath of God, the wrath of God, and it's piling up. And one day, one day, guess what's going to happen? The account's going to be cleared, and all of that wrath is going to be poured out upon them, right? The books will be open, and they will be judged by their works right so we need to understand this that that none of these things go by but the lord is slow to anger and he is great in power and he will not at all acquit the wicked that means uh, this acquittal it it basically means that it's something that only a sovereign can do and it's not it's basically mercy it's not justification mercy is basically when you don't get what's coming to you you are guilty but you don't get the punishment Okay, that's what that means. This is very different from justified, where justified means that it's like you never did it at all. You, get, you still retain a righteous standard, okay? That is not what this is, but he says, listen, it says, he will not at all acquit the wicked. That means he is gonna judge their sin. He is not gonna just like, you know, like, oh, uh, I, I'm not gonna look at it. I, I'm just gonna ignore it. You know, you're not gonna pay the price. You know, if you are found outside of Christ and, and you are judged by your works, then guess what? You will be judged, and the full weight of God's wrath will fall upon you, right? That's what he says about the wicked. It says, and the Lord has his way. Now, we're going to see within this poetry now, you know, they're gonna, Nahum's going to lift our eyes now to the grandeur and the might and the power of God. And it says that the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and the storm. Right, so you just imagine like a, a great hurricane, a tornado, or things like that. It's like he, what he's basically saying is like God has His way, and God can control it. He can make it turn left. He can make it turn right. Right? Why does it hit that house and not that house? I have no idea. God knows. We'll find out then, maybe. Okay, we don't understand it. We don't know, but God has He has sovereignty, right? It, it is His right. It is His ability, right? But He has this great power even over the elements. Right? And it says that um, he has his way with the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So you sit there and you think of these great hurricanes that can make you know, winds that are like 200 plus miles an hour, and the tornadoes and all that, how they can literally launch two by fours through solid brick walls, you know, like they were nothing. And, he, and what Nahum's saying, he's like, hey guys, even the most powerful storm is like dust on the feet of God that he's shaking off. Okay, basically what, what Nahum's trying to do here, he's just trying to give you an example of the power and the glory of God. 
It says, and he rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. He, he can literally you know, command the oceans. We've seen this in the Old Testament, haven't we? Right? And, and not only that, he says he can withhold rain uh, from countries. It says the mountains quake before him or shake. It says the hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. That word heaves, it literally, sorry to be gross, but it means to retch, like to vomit. Right? And when you're if you can remember the last time you vomited or somebody close to you vomited how their body is like convulsing right he's saying that the earth heaves at his presence it convulses it shakes at his might and his power he says yes the world that means the whole planet and all who dwell in it right when people sit there and they sit there and they blaspheme god and they yell at god and they point their finger and shake their fist at god you know they seem really brave right now with the veil between them and god But see, one day they're going to be standing before him, and they're going to see him. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to fall on the ground, and they're going to convulse in fear. Okay? So don't let the pride of foolish men uh, frighten you, because it will be turned back one day. He says, all all of the world and all who dwell in it. And he says, who can stand before his indignation? The Bible says that every knee shall bow. Right, Every knee shall bow. Who can stand before his indignation when you stand before the great white throne of God? No one. Every single person. The Richard Dawkins of this world, you know, whoever else, Voltaire, he's one of my favorites, just not favorites, just in the sense he's a great example because he died on his deathbed cursing God. Right? And you know what? There's going to be a day he's going to kneel before God and he's going to fess that he is Lord. Right? That is a reality. Who can stand before his indignation? No one. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Can anybody endure hell? No, absolutely not. He says his fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Just imagine a big bowl full of gasoline, light it on fire and knock it over. What's going to happen? It's going to consume everything. If I did it right here, this whole building would burn down very quickly. Right, that is like his fury being poured out. And if you want a greater understanding of what this means, just flip forward to the book of Revelation. Start at chapter six, and you will understand this verse very clearly. It says, and even the the rocks are thrown down by him. Now, when we see this imagery of God, it gets kind of scary, doesn't it? Right, even even somebody who is in Christ, and you see this, and you're like, oh my goodness, it's hard to picture God red in the face with fury and anger and might and and, and judging people. Right, that's a that's a scary picture. But I, I want you to see something. Verse seven, Nahum, I think realized the imagery that he was giving is kind of scary, and so what he reminds us now is in verse seven. He says, "The Lord is good. The Lord is good." Now in if any of you are C.S. Lewis fans reading Chronicles of Narnia, do you remember the phrase about Aslan that they say throughout the whole thing? He's not a, he's not a tame lion. Now, at the end, I even love it because they start, it, they start using that phrase, meaning one thing, and then later as the people go, and even in the last battle, they begin to misuse the phrase. And I thought that was very clever of C.S. Lewis to do that. Right? Because when he says he is not a tame lion, that just means you can't control him. He is not a domesticated pet. When you say here boy here boy right god is not a tame god right he's not somebody who is your little genie that you get to rub and command him to do what you want him to do right but in the end of c.s lewis they were saying like he's not a tame lion basically means he can do whatever he wants he can even sin well that's not true because why because god is good right he is righteous he is holy and when we sit there and we look at tornadoes you know know, taking that trailer you know 
complexes and all that kind of stuff and we say well wait a second he says that you know he has his will in the storm and we say i don't understand i don't understand is maybe you know maybe god's not a tame god no 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 no. that's not what that means and you know what we may not understand right now you know we may not understand but he says his ways are higher than our ways they're above our ways as above as high as the heavens are above the earth so his ways are above our own you know we can't understand we won't fully comprehend until that day but this we know he is good Right, He is so good, and he loves every single man, woman, and child on this earth so much that he did what? He died. He bled his own blood. He poured out his own life, and he, he was tortured and humiliated for us. That's, so w- whenever we come across something like this, and, and we kind of, like, kind of shake at the fierceness of God's wrath, we also have to remember the fierceness of his love and how much he has done in order to save all. For it is, will, it is his will that none, none should be judged to go to hell, but that all should be saved. Right? That is a truth that we must hold on to. He says, the Lord is good, and he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Do you know that? Do you know that the, the name of God is a strong tower, that the righteous run into that name and are safe? Uh, Heidi and I are reading uh, Corey Tinboom's book right now, A Hiding Place. And, you know, through her, her whole family motto was, Jesus is the victor, right? And, and as she was going through the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, you know what she said again and again and again? Jesus is the victor, right? And as she came out, the reason why she could have such a powerful ministry all around the world, even into her 80s, right? She could still go from place to place. I think at 86 years old, she's still traveling the world, you know, sharing her testimony with people. Why? Because Jesus is the victor, right? And he is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Now, we don't always know, do we? Sometimes we question, is that person really saved? Is that person really saved? No, I don't really know. That person's definitely saved, but in the end, do you really know? No, of course not. But God does. God does. And so though we don't understand, we we need to remember this. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. And so we have to commit all of these things and all of these people and the affairs of the world into his more than capable hands, right? He's got it under control, and the righteous can rest in that. He says, but, verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. This we must understand. God will avenge, right? He, he will judge uh, the wicked. He says, what do, you dis- what do you conspire against the Lord, right? If you wanted to, to somehow, like, I, I don't know, checkmate God in some way so you could do your wicked deeds. It's like, who in the world could do that against him? He created the heavens and the earth by simply speaking it into existence. Light be and light was, right? So what are you going to do? What do you conspire against the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. And it says, this is the answer. He will make an utter end of it. He says, affliction will not rise up a second time. I find this interesting because who is this uh, book primarily against? Nineveh. Hasn't God dealt with Nineveh once before in the Old Testament through a guy named Jonah? Right? And so the people of Nineveh heard the the word of the Lord. See, God came saying 40 days until destruction. Right? That was his message. 40 days until destruction. And you know what? He didn't give them any opportunity to repent. The people just assumed, hey, you know what? The only chance we got is if we do repent. And maybe because God is merciful, he will save us. 
Okay, so God is the God of second chances for sure. And, and the Ninevites did find grace in the eyes of God because of their humility. This time God says there is no second chance. He says, now you will be judged. Right? And this is, a, this is a promise to the Ninevites, but it is also a promise to the nation of Israel who are under um, the affliction of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, they weren't the nicest of people. When they would conquer a city, they would take the captives out with hooks, like big fish hooks, through their noses and through their jaws. Right, and pull them by chains in long caravans like chain gangs. Right, they were very, they were wicked. They they would strip you naked and literally march you across um, to they to wherever they were going to take you and sell you as slaves. They, they mistreated people horribly. They they were a vile people. He says, and while uh, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like the stubble fully dried. He's talking about the the, the judgment on Nineveh. He says, from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And this is what the Lord has to say that, to, about that. He says, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Right? Sometimes the enemy seems so strong and there's, they're in such uh, numbers that there's, there's no way. How, you know, how can we resist? Right? We look at the people who are the enemies of God today, even in the United States, and it's just like, oh my goodness, it's like, like every single school is bent on making our kids atheists or at least you know, haters of God. And you know, it's okay if they love other religions, but just not Christianity. Right? And it's like, gosh, how do we deal with this? And like every single university, almost every single college is against us. Now, there's granted there are a few charter schools and things like that that still love. But like the, the vast majority of them are completely antagonistic and, and, and hateful towards Christianity and the Christian faith. So how do we fight such numbers? How do we fight such a liberal agenda? What do we do against that? Well, we understand that the Lord in, in his time and in his way he can move nations and he can move mountains and the earth will tremble at his presence. And so we don't have to fear, right? We don't have to fear. He says, when he passes through, it will be done. And then uh, I believe that he now turns his eyes to Israel. And he says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. And you know what? That's my prayer. That's my prayer for our nation. You know, right now, you know, we're, we're not near as bad as you know, the nation of Israel has fallen, where, where God has judged the nation, nation of Israel. We're on the beginning phase of, I think, of the, of the judgments of God, you know, as a nation. But I do pray, it's like, you know, Lord, you know, be merciful and, you know, raise up godly men and women again, right? Change the hearts of your people, change the hearts of this nation and afflict us no more. See, uh, I, I don't want to be a dumb kid. See, dumb kids are the ones who, and I was a dumb kid, if you didn't know, when I was young. And, I, and my dad, you know, you know, I was afraid of my dad, for sure. But you know what? Like, I'd, I'd stand toe-to-toe with him, wouldn't I, Mom? I was, and my brother, he would say, what are you, stupid? Just shut up. Right? He literally, he, that was literally counsel for my brother, my seven-year-older brother, uh, to me one day. He's like, what are you, stupid? Just shut up. But I wouldn't. Right? I, I would always stand toe-to-toe with my dad, and then I'd get in trouble. Right? And my dad had a way of making you know when you were in trouble, <laughs> right? And he says, but you know what? I, I'm not that stupid kid anymore. Now I'm just like, you know, the Lord begins to rebuke me. I'm like, oh, sorry, Lord. <laughs> I don't need any of that. I'm good. I'm good. I, I learned my lesson. Okay, I repent. I, I, I try to be very quick to repent. And, you know, I see our nation. It's like, and, and I see the direction our nation is already going. And, and you know, we're getting the people we want. Right, the people that we vote for, we're a democracy, right? The people that we vote for, we're getting. 
You know, it, it's happening. And I just say, hey, that's enough for me, Lord. That's good. I'm good. I'm good. Hey, uh, <laughs> uncle, I'm good. Unfortunately, I think our generation is full of a, a few more people that were like me when I was a kid, right? And they want to stand toe-to-toe with God and look them in the eye and shake their fist at him. Well, God is a stronghold. Let's run into him and be safe. He says, the Lord has given a command concerning you, looking back now to Assyria. He says, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. Right? See, that's God's view towards sin and wickedness. But then he, he finishes, I love how he finishes this first chapter. He says, behold the mountains at the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Right? That's what we are, right? We are men and women who proclaim peace and good tidings, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, listen to this final exhortation. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows. Why does he say that? He says, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now, here's a very important thing that we also must understand about our God. There is one standard. There is one righteous standard for the wicked and the just alike. Whether you, be, whether you name the name of Jesus Christ or whether you curse it every single day of your life, there is one righteous standard. And he says, O Judah, he says, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows. Follow, now this is to the Jews, follow my law. Serve your God. Why? Because he will judge them. He has judged them. And you know what? We don't see it yet here, but Babylon is coming. Nebuchadnezzar is coming, and the captivity is coming. See, he will judge them too if they err and they turn away from what is righteous, right? And, and that, that includes the church, right? One of the, prophetic, the, the end times prophecies is that the church is going to grow cold and turn away from God. It's, it, it's, it's the, the falling away. And you know what? You look at the church today, how many pastors teach not just neutral ground not just oh we just need to embrace everybody but how many pastors are actually teaching anti-christian doctrine more than are teaching righteous doctrine unfortunately right we are in that time and so god says to the church he says to me and he says to you he says oh judah oh church Keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That is a warning to the church in, in the 21st century. But at the same time, see, we have all these things to those who are. See, and, and I love that. It says God knows who are his. Right? He knows who are his, and he is a stronghold. Right? He is one that we can trust in. Guys, do we need to, do we need to be fretting? Do we need to be you know, like hanging on every word of the newspaper? Do we need to be scanning the news stations going, what's going on now, what's going on now, what's going on now? Not in that way. We can do those things just to keep up with the times. It's like, wow, you know, my Lord's you know, return is near. Wow, yes, I'm excited. But out of fear and trepidation, no. We don't need to do that. Why? Because God knows who are his And if we love him and serve him and follow him and we name the name of Jesus Christ and we abide in him, then who can be against you, O church? No one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this word. Lord, we we just pray that that you would help each one of us to learn these lessons, Lord, to, to walk in these truths. Lord, we know that you will avenge us, Lord, so we need not be angry or hold grudges for anybody, 
no matter how they have wronged us, Lord, for they are treasuring up wrath for themselves. But Lord, we can pray for mercy. We can love our enemies. We can love our wives. We can love our husbands and our children, our siblings, the people of our church. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you know our name. Lord, how humbling that is, that you know us so personally. Help us to trust in you, Lord, to be bold witnesses of you, to keep our word, letting our yes be yes and our no, no. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. For it is our greatest desire, Lord, to be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we know there is nothing we can do to make you love us more. For Lord, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And yet, Lord, with just the grace that you have shown us, Lord, it is our desire to bless you all the days of the lives that we have left. So Lord, we glorify you now in Jesus' name. Amen.